it, it was in, uh, I think, 2004, Dr. Anderson, Pastor Anderson, uh, taught me Hebrew. And I noticed you have uh, Hebrew up here. Shema Israel, Yehya Elohenu, Yehya Echad. Do the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> he actually made us memorize this verse, but I, I will not attempt the rest of it today. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, I'm still trying to keep up my Hebrew. And uh, I actually met with Dr. Glenn, uh, Professor Glenn, uh, several times as well, who's a mentor of both of us uh, and a great influence uh, in our lives. So thank you for inviting me today. My wife, uh, Didi's here. My uh, daughter, Deanna Marie, is here as well. And I'm sure many of you have already met her. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, teaching in Atlanta, and I taught on the whole book of Revelation. Uh, Dallas has a <coughs> extension campus down there, and this is my third trip down there. We're teaching Hebrews through Revelation, and the last class was on the book of Revelation. So I'm going to give you just a little a bit of what I taught uh, yesterday in Atlanta. So let me start with uh, the book of Revelation and just a story. Um, a few years ago, my daughter... And my son and I went to Chicago to a SEMP conference, students equipped to minister to people. And there were several hundred students there. And they broke us up into groups to practice doing evangelism. And so they sent uh, our group to the airport. And so we uh, singled out this one person and we approached them and we asked if we could share with them. And the person was dressed all in black with black you know, hair, makeup, and just real, everything was, uh, you know, dark. And so I noticed she was with her parents. And when we approached, they were kind of happy that we were talking to her. And I, I asked her if uh, she was interested in spiritual things. And she says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in the book of Revelation. And I said, really? And I was writing my dissertation on the book of Revelation. And she, I said, why? And she says, because it's really dark. And I'm looking at her and I'm going, okay. <laughs> uh, the parents are really happy that we're talking to you. And I said, well, it's dark for some people, but it's really light for others. And so we began to share the, the gospel with her. Well, the book of Revelation is really dark for some people, but it's really light for others. In fact, it's a love letter. You know, in the Old Testament, God had a wayward wife. Israel was a, a symbol of a wayward wife. He loved her. He chose her. He made a covenant with her, and that covenant relationship uh, was a metaphor for an intimate marriage relationship that he had with Israel. But time and time again, she went her own way. In fact, in the book of Hosea, Hosea mar marries this wayward wife who symbolizes Israel. And the rest of the whole Old Testament story is how God has to uh, woo her back and win her back and wage war to get her back. 
And in the book of Revelation, we see the exact same thing. We see uh, another bride, the church, uh, addressed to in the letters to the seven churches. And he's uh, waging war for her. and He's wooing her back. In fact, there's two brides in the book of Revelation. There's the, the church, and then there's the wayward bride in chapters 4 through 17. And so I'd like to share with you the story of the book of Revelation. Now, when I wrote my dissertation, I had to convince my first reader, uh, Dr. Johnson, um, that there was a story here. And uh, they were telling me, no, 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 it's, it's, there's, this is not narrative. This is you know, prophetic, epistolary literature, apocalyptic literature. <clears throat> and I'm saying, well, it's apocalyptic narrative. Let me tell you the story. So let me, let me read to you what I wrote. Before a groom was to be married to his bride, he was called away to fight in a great war to end all wars. He encouraged his future bride to wait for him until he returned. And he promised that he would be faithful to the end. He promised her that he would never, they would never be separated again. Therefore, she must remain faithful to the end. And while he was gone, great temptation came upon the future bride to marry another. So he sent his faithful servant to tell his fiancée a dream that he had had. Um, and so the servant narrated the message to her, and he reminded her of her master's faithful love for her, and that she would remain faithful at all costs, even to death. And her future husband knew that she needed to trust him, and she needed constant encouragement. So he wrote seven letters concerning his love for her and the power he had to consummate the marriage. Essentially, victory had already been won, even though it did not appear so, but it was now just a matter of time. Uh, the enemy was defeated, but not yet surrendered, and he was mounting one last great battle. So in order to encourage uh, his master's future bride, the messenger, he also described the groom's father. He explained how his master's father had also protected and loved his bride in the past. And even though she went uh, wayward, her fiance's father uh, took her bride back, even though she had done great dishonor to his name. And so the reason for this present war was because the father had gone to rescue this wayward bride. And she had repented. And she was about to be killed by the enemy. And so great was his love for her that the father sent his only son in order to rescue her. And so the messenger described uh, to the bride, the fiancé, uh, the enemy. And he warned of the great destruction on earth that would come. He warned her of how many would follow after the enemy and how they would be tricked and deceived by him. He encouraged her to remain faithful and true and not act like the uh, wayward bride. And then he described how the final battle would be fought and how they would win, as he had seen in, in the vision of his uh, master. And he described this battle three times, focusing 
more detail each time on the evil nature of the enemy. Meanwhile, the enemy was furious and was attempting to destroy the repentant bride and a great dragon fell from heaven and a great sea monster came out of the sea and a great beast came out of the desert to consume her. So the king sent two great generals and 12 armies of 12,000 men to rescue her. And the sun was also mounted on a white horse with an innumerable great army from every nation dressed in white. And on the enemy side, all the rebellious nations of the earth came to fight God's, the king's son. And when the sun appeared, there was a great earthquake that shook the earth so violently that the enemies were dismayed. And so great was his power that he was able to rescue the wayward bride um, from the enemy. The groom promised that he would return and have a great wedding celebration, a great feast for all the victors. And there they would celebrate the marriage supper of the groom and the bride. So uh, she who had been given no compassion, the wayward bride, now received compassion again. And she who was not a people now became a people of the kingdom again. So the son celebrated as he had given his life for his bride and now came to reclaim her. So after a thousand year reign, uh, the enemy was released one more time. And in another great battle uh, to see who was really faithful in the kingdom. And thereafter, the faithful servant described uh, how a new era would come and the people of the kingdom would be like a bride coming down out of heaven. And he described how their city would be colored with every valuable stone and the garden would produce eternal fruit. And the walls of the city would be impregnable and only those who were righteous would enter forever. But in the meantime, the bride must wait patiently until the groom came back as promised. So these promises were in the, the future and the bride had to wait for her husband's return. But she had hope that just as her husband's father was faithful to his wayward bride, so uh, her future husband would be faithful to her and keep his promises. So someday the groom would defeat the enemy and death itself and return for his bride. And the bride believed these promises and prayed to the groom, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. Can you see the story in the book of Revelation? Uh, it's a story. It's an apocalyptic narrative. And often we lose sight of the story because uh, it's so uh, incredibly uh, dismal if you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. It's not just about darkness. It's not just about judgment. It's about light. It's about a wedding. And we are the main guest at the wedding besides the bridegroom himself. Uh, we are the bride of Christ. And so we should read the book of Revelation uh, really as a love letter 
And so he wrote these letters to the seven churches. Now there's a, a bridal motif in the book, and it's, it's really obvious if you look at it and if you treat it as a story. So remember that when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, he comes back in a white horse, and he celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's the wedding. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and who have been clothed in white gowns. That's our wedding dress. It's not just the girls who get the wedding dress. It's the guys who get the wedding dress. And guys, you will look good in your wedding dress. And so that is the story. That is what the book of Revelation is looking forward to. It's the return of the bridegroom. And in the letter to the seven churches, uh, the bridegroom is asking the bride to be patient, to hold on, to not uh, seek for other lovers, uh, to not be tempted or deceived to follow someone else. And so we're going to see in each of the, the letters to the seven churches, they're struggling with some form of idolatry or love for Christ. And so um, I'd like to take you to Revelation chapter 2 and show you how this exactly works out in the book. So in Revelation chapter 2, um, we have a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in the letter to the church, we have a command to write to the angel of the church in, in Ephesus. Now, chapter 1 gives us a description, a characterization of Christ, the bridegroom. And in that, those characterizations of Christ as the bridegroom, we get a characterization in the introduction to each of the seven letters. And so Christ is being characterized here as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Now in chapter 1, we are told the mystery, uh, 120, the mystery of the seven stars, who you saw in uh, my right hand and the seven golden stands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we don't have to guess the meaning of those uh, images. And so here's Christ. He's holding the seven stars in his hand and he's walking amidst the, the golden lampstands. And so Christ is our protector and he is our sustainer. He knows us intimately. He has us in his hand. Now the angels... Uh, of the seven churches, uh, notice that when he commends the church and then he condemns certain actions in the church, he says, repent. Now, this messenger must be a human messenger and not an angelic messenger because I don't think an angel would repent of the deeds that he is doing in the book. And so Christ is holding this human messenger, possibly the one who's carrying the letter, 
back to the church, who represents the church, in fact is uh, representative of the personality and the attitude and the doctrine and the love of the church. And so uh, I understand you're looking for a pastor and uh, Christ is going to hold that pastor in his hand as you uh, come together and you select a pastor who has similar doctrine as you, has, has similar love for Christ as you do. Now, he's not going to be perfect. Um, you know, we all want a perfect pastor, but, you know, we all know that's impossible. Um, so you need to find a pastor who is what is described in the seven letters here. Someone who represents your heart for God and uh, your seeking after the will of God. It may not be a perfect pastor. Uh, you're going to have to love him and you're going to have to shape him and you're going to have to form him into the man of God uh, that he should be. So he will do the same thing. Uh, he will seek God with all his heart and uh, he will try to have that intimate relationship with Christ so that he can lead you as well. And it will be his dependence on the Father <coughs> As he is intimately connected to the Father, he can intimately minister to you and vice versa. As you are intimately connected to the Father, you can intimately minister to one another and your future pastor. So I encourage you, don't, don't look for the perfect pastor, uh, but look for the pastor who has got a heart after God and who is seeking after God according to the messages that he's writing to the seven churches here. And so... He says here, I know your works. So Christ has this church, this messenger who represents each of the churches. He has them in his hands. He knows them intimately. And he knows exactly what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. So not only does he have us in, our hand, in his hands, and not only does he sustain us, not only does he know our every need, but he knows how to fix us as well. And so he's going to give <clears throat> a message of encouragement here. <clears throat> so I, I know your works <clears throat> and the labor and your endurance, <clears throat> and you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. So we get the characterization here of the church of Ephesus. They are doctrinally sound. And I know you are, are doctrinally sound. And they know the difference between truth and error. In fact, they know the difference between a true apostle and a false apostle, a true prophet and a false prophet, a true teacher and a false teacher. Their doctrine is good. So they're solid. So Christ commends them for their knowledge of the word, okay? Their doctrine. <clears throat> he says in verse 3, I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. 
And so they are doctrinally sound, but they've abandoned their first love. They've lost their first love. And so what does that mean? Uh, we're given a clue to what that means in the passage itself and in the other letters. And so he says, Remember then how far you have fallen and repent and do the, the works you did at first. Now remember, um, I don't think an angel would repent. So I think this is a message to the uh, leader who represents this particular church. Now, all churches have personalities, okay? And if you visit a different church, that's a good thing. Uh, each of them is going to have their strengths and their weaknesses. And so he's telling this church, you need to repent and see how far, remember how far from which you have fallen. Now, <clears throat> as I said before, I, I believe the book of Revelation is really a love letter. It's written to the, the bride of Christ. And we are to have that perspective. In fact, my, my dissertation was on the bride of Christ, the bridal motif in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are to view the book of Revelation in this positive light. And so he's saying, uh, as the bride of Christ, you have abandoned your first love. Look how far you have fallen. But your doctrine is sound. But doctrine without love is legalism. And love without doctrine is idolatry. We're going to get that in the letter to the church of Thyatira. And so there's a balance. There's a healthy balance. And then he says, evaluate where you're at now. Remember where you were. Now, if you're married, uh, you might remember when you were first dating and uh, when you were engaged and uh, your wedding day and how excited you were about your marriage uh, or your you know, first child and how excited you were when they were born and they came into the world. And uh, you know, I remember when I held my daughter, Deanna Marie, and her head would fit right here and her little legs would hang down the side and I would run up the stairs like a football and her eyes would you know, grow, real, grow real big. And, <clears throat> and I just remember how you know, precious those years and look how you know, quick they go. And I remember my, you know, my marriage and that, that uh, intimate relationship we had and uh, friendships. You know, when we have these incredible friendships when we're growing up and, um, you know, you spent so much of your time together and, you know, playing sports and going to school and working together. And then later you look back and you wonder, look how far I've fallen. Uh, remember how good it used to be. And this is what he's saying in the letter. He says, look, you are the bride of Christ. Hold on. I, he says, I admire your perseverance and your hardship for the sake of my name. You're hanging on. 
but you've lost the love. You're hanging on to the doctrine, but you've lost the love that goes with that doctrine. And so he says, evaluate where you're at and uh, repent and go back to the deeds that you had before. And he gives us a clue into what this means. You, you, yet you have this. So he's going to give them uh, a call to action. You have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we've got a love-hate relationship going on here. Uh, remember that they hate false doctrine. And the question is, who are these Nicolaitans? If we just go down a little bit uh, to the Church of Pergamon, uh, they mention, he mentions here uh, the church, uh, the, uh, at the Church of Pergamon, they're having a problem with the Nicolaitans and Balaam. Now remember, Balaam, he tempted Israel. Uh, he couldn't curse Israel directly, but he could get Israel to curse herself. And so he did that through inviting them to dinner and then inviting uh, the people to dinner. And then one thing led to another until they committed acts of immorality and idolatry, eating things sacrificed to their gods. And he says here in uh, the church to Pergamum, in the same way, <coughs> verse uh, 15, in the same way as Balaam, was, uh, Israel was tempted by these eating things sacrificed to idols, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So there's some type of a eating and sacrificing to idols that's tempting them uh, to lose their first love, uh, that relationship they have with Christ. And it has to do with eating. Now, the Balaam temptation may be the Jewish uh, temptation that they've experienced in the past. The Nicolaitan may be the Greco-Roman temptation that they're experiencing that Paul is maybe writing about in his letters. But whatever it is, it has to do something with idolatry. Each of the churches is having a problem with idolatry, except the first one. They're so strong, but they've lost their first love. So what does he say to do? He calls them to action. He says this. If anyone, verse 7, has ears to ear, hear and um, listens to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the overcomer, here's what an overcomer does. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is food again. See, they hate the Nicolaitans and the church at Pergamum uh, is also being tempted by this food which leads to idolatry. And we're going to see in the church of Thyatira uh, next week <laughs> that they're also being tempted by food, by this Jezebel figure who introduced Baal worship in Old Testament history, right? And so God says, look, 
Here's how you return to your first love. Return to the Garden of Eden. Look how far you have fallen. Remember that intimate relationship we had with God in the beginning where we saw him face to face. Now, God gave uh, Adam a wife. He gave, her, he gave him a partner. But marriage is only a picture on earth of our intimate relationship we have with God in heaven. Because when we die, we're not going to be married again. We're going to be like the angels. Our most intimate relationship we're going to have is going to be with God and with others in heaven. It's going to be better than anything you can imagine on earth. You know, I love dark chocolate, but dark chocolate in heaven is going to be much better than anything we can imagine on earth. And the best thing you can imagine on earth is much better in heaven. You know, Christianity is not about do's and don'ts, can and cannots, and restrictions. It's about eating the fruit that God gave us in the beginning. Why eat the fruit in this world when the fruit is much better in that world? Do you remember in the, in the, in the beginning, he says, you know, look, you will eat from the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, look what he says about the, the tree of life. So in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed, and the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we've got this tree right in the middle. And we're supposed to enjoy all the fruit from the garden. And what does man and woman do? They take, they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> now that was like, that was um, the tree of the knowledge of evil uh, was a form of idolatry. What they were saying is, um, I am going to decide what is good and evil. I am going to become like God. And so Satan tempted them with this false idea, this false fulfillment, uh, this false uh, desire. She looked, and it was desirable. And so that's what Satan is doing to us today. That is what Satan is doing in the letters to the seven churches. If we look at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, we see the fulfillment of this promise to become overcomers. In Revelation 22, 1, he showed me <coughs> the river of life, clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and down uh, the middle of the, the main street, uh, the tree of life was on each side of the river. There's our tree of life. This time it's on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. And so we're back to the beginning. 
back to our intimate relationship with Christ. Look how far you have fallen. Look how far we've come from that beginning where we had the fruit from the tree of life. Like I said, Christianity is not about do's and don'ts and can'ts and cannots and restrictions. For every reaction, there is a, every action, there's an opposite reaction. Let me say this. For every temptation and desire in this world, there is an opposite and equal fulfillment that is far greater, far more fulfilling in heaven. Whenever you are tempted in this world with your eyes or your lust or your desires, God has something other for you to eat. And it's much more fulfilling. Whenever your mind wanders towards something on this earth, look to the equivalent that God is giving you in heaven from the tree of life. This tree bears uh, 12 fruits uh, each uh, 12 months and bears fruit uh, in each month of the year. There's nothing in heaven that God has not uh, for you that will fulfill your, your, your every desire. And then look at verse 22, 17. Both the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let him who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take from the water of life as a gift come. And then it finishes off in verse 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written in this book. Uh, let me finish with this illustration. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in Los Angeles, um, in my backyard, we had these fruit trees. We had a fig tree, and there's nothing more uh, delicious than eating a fig tree, a fresh fig falling off the tree or just picked off the tree. They're just ready to burst. Uh, but I'm not a big fig fan. But my neighbor had an apricot tree, and they would hang over our yard, and there is nothing like California apricots right off the tree, and they're big and juicy. And then their avocado tree hung into our yard. And I love green gold avocado. Uh, and then my next door neighbor had a plum tree. Oh, black, these black plums straight off the tree. There, I have never eaten a plum so delicious ever in my life except from that tree. That's what the tree of life is like. Whatever substitute you have here on earth, God has a better, real, satisfying fruit in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you, Lord, that we are the bride of Christ. I pray for this church, Lord, to give them uh, the pastor that you want them to have. And they would be the congregation uh, that would uh, uplift that pastor and encourage that pastor and they would encourage one another. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would return to you, our first love. We thank you in your name. Amen.